A military-industrial complex is everywhere. India has one, Russia has one, Brazil has one, China has one, even smaller countries have one. The U.S. military-industrial complex is the most famous, or infamous, depends how you look at it. Now, to be fair, a country needs a military-industrial complex. If a country has a military, it needs a military-industrial complex to make hardware, the kit, everything that keeps the military going. Think about it. Food, technology, clothes, as well as the guns, planes, and bombs. The most notorious of these military-industrial complexes happens to be that one, the United States. Partly because it's the biggest, but also partly because it's a public-private joint collaboration. So most of the companies contracted need to make profits. Now again, to be fair, all such entities, public or private, not just in the U.S., needs to do this. They need to keep jobs and to keep kit fresh and it needs to be recycled occasionally. Unlike buying a new car, buying arms requires something else to happen. War. New tanks, bombs, and planes come and go, and only during some kind of conflict. So it's unlike any other industry. Again, countries with militaries wound a military industrial complex. It needs to be replenished once in a while, at least following the wars. The factories need to be active. In the good old days, when humans lived in tribes and hunted and gathered en masse, then you'd just go and make your own weapons, just like many tribes do today, be it weapons to defend yourself or to kill humans or animals. Weapons. You are your own military industrial complex. Fast forward to when society started to settle down in farms. Then those male farmers would be conscripted to wartime. During peacetime, they would van the fields. Victory or defeat could be the difference between you and your family being alive, owning slaves, or being slaves or dead. Those were tough times. Then the bigger society would be building your arms for you, be they swords or shields. So you didn't have to be the military industrial complex. You just had to do the fighting. Fast forward some more to the nation state slash European era times, you know, the European Empire times. That would be post-1815. Armies would be regular, not just conscripted. So you had men, typically men would fight in those days. So you had men employed a military career. Most of the time, these guys would be doing nothing but training to keep them busy. The army needs to fight, right? That's how they learn and grow. Plus, more kit gets to be built, hence a military industry is needed. Then, in the post-1914 world, in an age when we had stuff like full mobilization and total war, where the entire country could be fighting, running, building a war machine, we've reached peak military industry. Following the end of the Second World War in 1945 and the onset of the Cold War, that brought less reliable occurrences of conflict into play. Western countries and Warsaw Pact countries would go elsewhere to fight their wars, keeping their kit always fresh, and all at the same time, someone else in, say, Latin America, Africa, or Asia would be screwed. After the 1991 fall of the USSR and the US and NATO being the sole powers, that policy of killing other people would continue to replenish their men and arms by continuing to fight them over there rather than fight them over here strategy. The term military-industrial complex was nicely socialized and popularized by the US President Dwight Eisenhower, who, as he left office, warned Americans of the upcoming nasties. Aside from being a U.S. president, Eisenhower was also a retired general from World War II, so he knew a thing or two about war and peace. He said in 1961, and I'm quoting from the speech, air quotes, Our military organization today bears little relation to that known by any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed the fighting men and women of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. 
But now we can no longer risk emergency in provision of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security more than the net income of all United States corporations. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state, house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and a knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the frequent changes in our military industrial posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. End quote. So that's what he said. That was the U.S. president in 1961. 1961. That long ago, he was warning that the U.S. now needs a military industrial complex ready to go to war at any time. And it's amazingly humongous, impacts every state, every city, every department in the government. And yet, it is dangerous. Since then, the U.S. has fought in Vietnam, invaded multiple countries like Grenada, Panama, Iraq, and Afghanistan. When it's not fighting, it's busy arming one or both sides in a conflict. Failing that, the U.S. has known treating allies who exclusively buy from the U.S., countries like the U.K., Germany, Japan, or Australia, sometimes even Middle Eastern ones like Saudi. All being said, in the global marketplace for arms, the U.S. does have competition. Its arms versus the arms sales from, say, China, Russia, Brazil, India, Israel, Iran, and elsewhere. So the U.S. military-industrial complex is up against others. It needs its sales, though. So does everyone else. So there's some competition going off. Without the U.K. buying arms and services and refreshing those arms and services, the U.S. military-industrial complex will lose revenue. The U.K. is just one example. Without India buying arms from Russia, the Russian military-industrial complex will suffer, too. That's how it works. That's how business is done. For the U.S., you can just add a NATO country and bingo, you've got a whole new group of people to sell arms to. For China, they would have to show off their wares a lot more before they can sell. They don't have a NATO to sell to. Another way to show off hardware is to show it off in a war, actual hot wars. Fighting in someone else's battle or selling them arms can show off the handiwork. If the military industrial complex is not constantly kept functioning and fed, the companies lose revenues. People lose jobs, and in democracies, politicians lose votes. Oh, and stock prices tank every time there is no war. If the company, in the US at least, is big enough, it can afford the lobbying of the government, and ideally buy off a few politicians in the process. Often, the companies recycle individuals inside government, the actual military, and these companies, so these people are constantly cycled and recycled amongst one another. That's the complex part of the military-industrial complex in the US. It is complicated. I'll give you a few names of these large U.S. corporations. And there is a mass production of products here because you get suppliers and 
then had suppliers too, and it's a web of industry. But here are the five big ones in the US. Number one would be Lockheed Martin. Two would be Boeing. Yes, that Boeing that makes 747s. Three is Northrop Grumman. Four, General Dynamics. And five would be Raytheon. That's the top five. Oh, and if you think the military industry is evil, well, it may be. But in times of actual war, like a hot war, if you don't have a functioning military industrial complex, you wish you had one of your own, rather than depending on a singular foreign power. So any government would be loopy to dump their military industrial complexes or their supplies to them. Outside the obvious strategic importance, there's also an economic thinking at play. It's called military Keynesianism. Military Keynesianism. Let me explain. John Maynard Keynes, a famous British economist, essentially argues ultimately for spending one's way out of economic hardship. I simplify all this, so apologies for that, but that's essentially what he's saying. Even though Keynes is all about macroeconomics, we take his theory and transpose it to the military industry, or sometimes lovingly known as the defense industry, and this theory then makes it that the government should raise military spending to boost economic growth. That's right, raise military spending to boost economic growth. Or put it another way, where Keynes advocates increasing public spending on socially useful items, such as infrastructure, additional public spending in this version is revised and basically they're building tanks and weapons instead. The obvious risk here is that this type of economy links the interdependence between the welfare and the warfare states. Welfare and warfare, in which the latter feeds the former in a potentially unlimited spiral. In the United States, this theory was applied during the Second World War during the presidencies of Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, and then onwards and upwards after that, the Vietnam Crusade and so on. Much of the Third Reich economy was interestingly also orientated toward militarization, especially to prepare for a possible war with the Russians. The Soviets had their own state-owned industries. Ultimately, there is no way, no way, none, none at all, that a military industry is separated from the military itself, the generals, the government, and the politicians be it the U.S. company Raytheon, for example, or the state-owned Russian military industry in its own right. It's an industry. This industry, this military industrial complex, is really the government. Let's make my point here with some contemporary issue. Let's take, for example, the Ukraine war in 2022. Do you think that U.S. politicians are happy about a war in Ukraine? A forever war, say. Now, they were sad about the pullout from Afghanistan, right? What did a conflict do? What does a conflict do for Russia's military-industrial complex when it went into Ukraine? Now, these are all weird questions, but really, Russia's military-industrial complex benefits, and the American one benefits too. Except in the Ukraine case, Russian soldiers die, American ones don't. Yet the complex works. Now, complexity, of course, is the word here, like I've said before. If you want a standing army with good kit, and you also want to take the opportunity to create local jobs and keep the war machine running just in case you need to have a fully mobilized army in the future, you better have a military industrial complex, just like the Russians do, just like the Americans do, like the Chinese do. Now, the moral police may think of this as some kind of crazy attitude, but it's pragmatic geostrategy. There is a place for a military industrial complex. But what if that industry gets too complicated? too big for its boots, a bit too nasty, maybe even so big that it hurts rather than advancing the national interest. That's where these U.S. corporations come in. 
You see, the United States, NATO, and the Anglo-Saxon world generally have a policy of fighting the enemy, imagined or real, over there rather than over here. That's the general idea. You fight someone on their land or something over there. So the U.S. is constantly looking to spend its weapons cash a lot more than any other country because you're not necessarily fighting your neighbors, meaning it gets involved in conflicts it would otherwise have no national strategic interest in getting into. Bombing Serbia in the 1990s, supplying arms to Ukraine after 2014 and in the early 2020s, funneling weapons to Iraq or Afghanistan for 10, 20 years, selling to NATO countries who can then themselves have to spend the cash and then buy back from the Americans. So, I mean, that's the military industry in a, in a nutshell. It's a shortish nutshell, I agree, but it is an explanation of what a military industry is and what the U.S. and worldwide military industrial complexes are and what makes the U.S. military industrial complex unique and new. In fact, if you are in a country that wants to defend itself or attack someone else at a whim, you better have a military industrial complex ready to go. The thing is that the U.S. had better watch out because in its case specifically, the tail may be wagging the dog. What I mean that is that the complex industry, the personnel, might be driving U.S. foreign policy against the interests of the people of the United States itself. And that is a problem, not just for the U.S., but the victims of United States or NATO foreign policy and military errors. That's it for this episode, everyone. Catch you soon. Bye for now. Thank you.